depends kind of when you experience a stress, and I'm talking about everyday stress, I'm not talking about sort of more long-term ongoing issues, but everyday types of hassles, the kind of lost keys type of thing. It depends on how you're feeling to begin with. It's not really the stressor itself, it's really your perception of the stressor, because something to one person having to do the dishes might be really stressful, to another person they might be like, this is kind of calming for me. So it's really your perception of the stress itself that has a lot to do with how you feel at that moment. So are you well rested? Did you just eat a bucket of ice cream when that happened? Did you skip your workout this morning when this happened? So if we can sort of have more uplifts in our day to kind of balance the hassles, I think that's what's more important because a lot of the stuff, there's stuff like losing your keys that doesn't have to happen all the time or your phone, like always keep it in the same place. That will reduce that type of stressor. But there's a lot of stress we can't control. Like we can't control the, the late flight or the commute. And those types of things, the things that are beyond your control, how fortified you are going in to kind of manage them. And then how many uplifts, like do you let that little thing put you in a horrible mood all day if you spilled the coffee on you? Oh, everything's gonna go wrong today. I knew it. This is gonna be the worst day ever. It sucks. And you sort of becomes like you kind of prove it true. Or how do you snap out of that? And I think it's by kind of creating more uplifts by having more interactions with people. That was Dr. Samantha Boardman. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Marnie on the Move. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Before we get started with today's amazing and inspiring episode, I wanted to let you know about two really great offers from Marnie on the Move podcast guests, Amrita Snacks and Mother Dirt Personal Care Products. Amrita offers delicious, high-protein, vegan, gluten-nut, dairy-free protein and energy bars and snacks. They are currently one of my favorite bars on the market. They are offering listeners of the Marnie on the Move podcast $10 off for first-time purchases using the code JUMPSTART at amritahealthfoods.com. Mother Dirt is a line of personal and skincare products that help restore the microbiome and natural bacteria in your skin. If you want to learn more, check out last week's episode with Mother Dirt president, Jasmina Aganovic. Mother Dirt would like to offer Money on the Move listeners 20% off and free shipping for first-time customers. Use this code FREESHIP20 upon checkout at motherdirt.com. Now, on to the show. On today's episode, I sync up with psychiatrist Dr. Samantha Boardman to talk about her unique and positive approach to psychiatry that emphasizes incorporating physical activity, nutrition, and wellness into your life for mental health. We talk about her philosophy around everyday resilience, the inspiration behind her website, Positive Prescription, where it all began, why chilling out can stress you out, which I am definitely guilty of, the value of getting out of your comfort zone, and of course, the exercise that fuels her for success. Positive Prescription, her website, is about making life just a little bit better, the focus is on building what's strong, not just fixing what's wrong. It's all science-backed, research-driven, actionable, productive, and digestible, life-enhancing, resilience-building insight and advice. Samantha Boardman is a clinical instructor in psychiatry and attending psychiatrist at Weill Cornell Medical College. She received her BA from Harvard University, her MD from Cornell University Medical College, and has an MA in Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Get ready for a fun, inspiring, and empowering conversation with Dr. Samantha Boardman. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy. Open the app on your phone, scroll past the episode list to ratings and reviews, click on the five stars, all five, then scroll down and click on Write a Review. Also, follow us on social, Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram, 
DM or email us at moneyonthemove1 at gmail with any questions you may have for me or my guests. And of course, follow today's guest, Dr. Samantha Boardman, on social or head over to her website and sign up for her newsletter. You can find her at positiveprescription.com and the same on social and Facebook. Okay, let's get started. What is positive psychiatry? Positive psychiatry is more about the study of health and wellness, not the study of mental illness. And I think if you look up the definition of psychiatry, it will say it's the study of mental illness. And so I spent many years focused on on symptoms and on people's problems and medication and, and medicating them and trying to sort of help people feel less badly. And positive psychiatry and psychology is looking at the other side of the coin. Like, what are their strengths? What do they enjoy doing? What sort of makes them feel strong? And if you look at studies of what people say who have mental illness talk about, and you say like, what matters to you? And yes, they want better treatments. They want better medications. They want to understand what's going on in their brain more, but they want more good days. You know, like they want better days where they feel strong, where they feel good, that they're enjoying life. They just want more joy in their lives. And the idea I think around positive psychiatry is to, in addition to sort of helping people with their symptoms, thinking, what can we do to help them feel strong? What can we do to help them find some wellness within their illness and build on their capacities to sort of reach their potential and not just try to sort of bring them back to their baseline and help them feel less bad in their symptoms and treat those symptoms. And I think getting to sort of see them as a whole person and seeing what they enjoy doing, what their goals are, how they find meaning in their life, like what, what are the things that matter to them and having them do some more of that and not waiting for that to be a sort of icing on the cake type of thing or as an afterthought, putting that front and center in treatment as well. And this is your day-to-day practice. This is what you're practicing when you see patients in your office. What kind of Mm -hmm. patients are you seeing? Like, is there a demographic or like a type of person that usually is coming in to see you? It's primarily young women. And I'm not quite sure sort of how that happened, but women like mid-20s and I'd say through like 40 or so and not as much anymore, I found it used to be sort of in the midst of some a crisis, like a breakup or in between jobs, loss of a parent, things like that. But it's become more and more, I've noticed about people who just feel overwhelmed, like just with their daily life, like they're just yeah. super stressed out about just getting everything done and being able to kind of take care of their personal lives and their work life and their families and whatever else is going on. It's just daily life has become a lot more stressful. It probably has a lot to do with our phones and just our yeah. lifestyles, but it's stressful. So tell me a little bit about everyday resilience. What does that mean? Everyday resilience is sort of about, instead of resilience, I think people often think about it in terms of like how people recover, how do they bounce back from something awful that has happened to them. And and I think that's how psychiatry defines it. And we hear about these heroic stories of resilient people. And that everyday resilience is, I think, what most of us need a lot more. And it actually turns out that people are far more resilient to like the big bad stuff that happens to them. And there's a lot of research that shows that people are pretty good ultimately at getting through difficult times. And it might have to do with social support, actually. Maybe people know when something bad has happened and they're there, they rally around you, they bring you casseroles, things like that. No one's bringing you a casserole because your flight was delayed. You know, the idea that maybe there's less social support in our everyday lives. And also I think a lot of everyday stress undermines our social connections too. So it's the idea that like, what can you do in your everyday life that can help promote mental health rather as opposed to, I think in psychiatry that I was often focused on, what can you do less of to make you less miserable? So I'm looking actually at the behaviors, also like the physical behaviors around eating, around sleeping, around moving, stuff like that. And that kind of taking psychiatry out of your head a little bit. And it's not just about how you're thinking. It's also about what you're doing. And so now this topic of everyday resilience is something that you're really focused on right now. Yes. Yes. So I'm working on a book that I hope comes out. I'll be finished soon. It'll be out by the end of the year, I hope on everyday resilience. And it's, I think, more sort of health promoting behaviors, ways you can fortify yourself and build emotional stamina to help you handle 
every single day because actually studies show that it is like everyday hassles that undermine our mental health more than the big bad stuff that happens to us. So it's everything from the bad hair day to your sports team losing to a sort of negative interaction with a colleague to a spilled coffee, your lost keys, like all those like little things that get under your skin and actually take this long-term toll on your mental health. So people who report more everyday hassles are much more likely to sort of get depressed or anxious. That brings up an interesting topic, which is that there are things that happen to us every day, all day that stress us out. And there's really nothing wrong with being stressed out about them. But there's ways that people can cope and not feel bad for being stressed out. Like we were talking about earlier, if you're having a bad hair day or your flight gets canceled, those are all valid things that happen and you're entitled to feel bad about it. But how do you turn that feeling of negativity into something positive? Yeah, it's exactly what I'm interested in. And this idea that Well, it depends kind of when you experience a stressor, like something, and I'm talking about everyday stress. I'm not talking about sort of more long-term ongoing issues, but everyday types of hassles, like the kind of lost keys type of thing. It depends on how you're feeling to begin with. It's not really the stressor itself. It's really your perception of the stressor because something to one person having to do the dishes might be really stressful. To another person, they might be like, oh, this is kind of calming for me. So it's really your perception of the stress itself that has a lot to do with how sort of how you feel at that moment. So are you well-rested? Did you just eat a sort of bucket of ice cream when that happened? Did you skip your workout this morning, you know, when this happened? So if we can sort of have more uplifts in our day to kind of balance the hassles, Mm. I think that's what's more important because a lot of the stuff, there's stuff like losing your keys, you know, that doesn't have to happen all the time or your phone, like always keep it in the same place. That will reduce that type of stressor. But there's a lot of stress we can't control. Like we can't control the delayed flight or the commute. And those types of things, it depends on the things that are beyond your control, how fortified you are going in to kind of manage them. And then how many kind of uplifts, like, do you let that little thing put you in a horrible mood all day if you spilled the coffee on you? Oh, everything's going to go wrong today. I knew it. This is going to be the worst day ever. It sucks. And you sort of becomes like you kind of prove it true. Or how do you kind of snap out of that? And I think it's by kind of creating more uplifts, by having more interactions with people, by even interactions with look up at the barista, say thank you for your coffee rather than, you know, I think we're also sort of sucked into the idea of like this productivity porn, like how can I get more done and how can I do it more quickly? And it's really also taking us away from the interactions we're having with others. And actually a lot of the uplifts in our days we're missing. There's just a study I'd read about how people laugh less today than they used to. And Laughing and smiling are so important. And the thing is, so to laugh, you've got to be paying attention. You're not going to really laugh when you're kind of scrolling through something like, oh yeah, that was funny. But if you really want that kind of full bellied laugh, you're going to need to be paying attention. And it's pretty much, I mean, yes, you might be watching a cat video, but people are most likely to laugh when they're with somebody else. But you have to be giving them your attention. You can't be just doing something else in kind of an an alone together way. You're not going to laugh then and there'll be fewer uplifts in your day. Yeah. And I mean, so speaking of uplifts and laughing, I really do love your website. So tell me, how did you come up with the idea to build all the amazing content on your website? Was it something I know you were practicing as a psychiatrist before? Mm -hmm. And then was it part of the evolution of your brand? Well, very much so. And I never really thought of it even as a brand. I'm flattered that you would even call it that. But the idea that I used to email my friends all the time. Anytime I'd read a study in psychiatry journal, I would send somebody an email, like, you've got to read this. And they would, to the point, like one friend of mine was like, can you just stop? Because I think there was so much, they really wanted the bottom line, like not to go through the methods and the results and what actually went into the study. They just wanted to figure out like what happened in the end. And I was sort of in this lost place. I hadn't gone yet back to school, back to get a degree in applied positive psychology. But the idea was, well, how can I share this information with people in a way that is digestible and actionable in ways they can sort of use it? And a friend of mine, Tori Birch, was the one who kept calling me up and saying, Sam, you need to start writing for me. I have this blog on my website. You need to start writing. And I kind of wouldn't do it. And I dragged my heels. Finally, she made me write a piece on, I think it was Mother's Day and also on how clothes affect how you feel. That's right. something I'm also really interested in that kind mm-hmm. of is an uplift in a way as well. And that we 
sort of tend to dismiss or gloss over. Sometimes people will have us believe that that stuff's superficial and it is for many people, but right. it might not be for you. And so if putting on a great dress or a lipstick makes you feel strong, yeah, do I, it. I completely agree with that. I mean, I definitely, when I'm wearing an awesome outfit, I have power outfits and yes. leather jeans and certain shoes and bags. I mean, hundred percent. I just think you, you stand a little taller. You yeah. just feel a little more confident. And as opposed to when you feel like, oh, I got the wrong thing on. I had something on the other night that was a little bit open and I'd have like a hook that I had like sewn into it and it just was coming apart. And it was just annoying. And I was really sort of somewhat just worried that it looked really awkward. And I think I was being awkward as a result. And it's just one yeah. of those little things that can just take away from an experience. So writing for Tori was sort of the, the first, your foray into And I've got to say, she thing. is a good yeah. friend to sort of push me. And then about two months later, and it had done well, she'd really promoted it really kindly and generously. And she was like, you have to start your own website. You've got to sort of start putting this stuff up there. You have to do this. And she would bug me every like three weeks. And I'd get this text like, have you done it yet? Have you done it? I don't see it yet. Where is it? And it's really nice to have friends like that yes. who kind of, they're tailwinds, you know, and the people who have your back and who can push you to do more than you think you can do and who sort of see something in you that I certainly didn't have the confidence to do then. I was like, how can I put this out there? And her sort of insisting, a bit like a battle axe, but I was so grateful actually for that. And I think that our best friends can be that for us. They're not just rough moments there for us. I think they're really there to help us to take opportunities and to do things and to push us and like maybe beyond what we think we're capable of. Right. That's an amazing friend. I mean, the accountability friend. Yeah. I have a lot of friends like that, that are like, did you do your podcast this week? Or are you doing this? Or are you doing that? When you're feeling like you don't want to do something, your friends can see it in you. So I was reading on your website, something about getting out of your comfort zone, which is something that I experience every day. And also as an athlete, but mm -hmm. even as an entrepreneur, as an athlete, as a person, everything. And I think that moment when you are in that space where you were talking about with Tori, where she wanted you to write this blog and you knew that you had all this great content and all these great ideas, but she pushed you and that was your sort of comfort zone in that moment. I mean, obviously this is your expertise. So talk to me a little bit more about- no, This is good. It's moments. like therapy for me. I <laughs> <No>. like it. <laughs> but so I think that comfort zone moment, mm -hmm. and I actually had my own experience recently realizing what that moment was for me. But I think instead of, I feel like when people say they're struggling or they are at a point where they want to give up. Like that's the comfort zone moment. Mm -hmm. Like, do you experience that a lot with patients? Yes. I mean, when people sort of will quit at that moment. That's like, the is comfort some, zone. Oh, who wrote that great book? I think it's Cal Newport on the dip. Like you don't want to quit when you just at that moment, if you are going to quit something, quit when you're done in some way or whatever, you're at a finished point. It's some sort of goal that you've set that you've made, but don't quit in between. Right. Like you don't want to quit at the lull in some way. And I think a lot of us do, and we lack that confidence. And, and it is oftentimes, I think other people who will kind of help nudge us along because when that self-doubt sets in mm -hmm. and you think, wait a minute, I really can't do this. And it's funny. And I think every time I'll think, oh, well, next time it'll be easier to kind of face this challenge. But every time it is sort of like Groundhog Day and we do yeah. need it anew. And even every single day, and I think that is part of everyday resilience is can you can you learn something? And I think that is even, because it's so easy. And I think especially when we've got all these hassles, sort of, you know, these like pebbles pounding us, literally, I'm looking out the window, like the snow. It's sort of crazy. Like this down. is a real squall. And the idea that we can sort of then retreat and we get stuck in what we know and we've all done it in that sort of adamant, sort of stubborn mode of, well, this is how it is. And this is how it's going to be. And this is the way I want it to be rather than like, wait, what can I learn about this? And it was somebody who had said to me years ago, the idea of, I think I'd been like, oh, why do I have to sit next to that person or what, what is that? Like, I've always heard he's so boring or something. And then being reminded, everybody knows something you don't. Right. Just because this is some reputation, it's up to you. Make this a challenge for yourself. Right. I bet he, that guy knows a lot about something. You have no idea about it. Ask him, learn something. And I think I've kind of brought that along with me to so much of what I do. And the idea that if you have an opportunity any day to learn something, take it. Right. And that I think can really help kind of get you out of that comfort zone and getting into that space of being a know-it-all in some way or thinking that this is all you need to know about something. And 
the idea of kind of keep pu pushing yourself in some way and challenging yourself and challenging even your accepted truths about what you believe. Is this the best exercise routine for you? Whatever that is, maybe it is time to change it up because it is sort of comfortable in that routine. But maybe is this really, am I capitalizing on what it should be? Maybe it's time for me to, to make a change. And does this come up a lot in your sessions with clients? I mean, that's what you're all about, positive psychiatry. Yes, it does. It, it really does. And I, I think it's not up for everybody, but I think people who appreciated her, who are interested in, in change, because everybody sort of comes to therapy with an idea of like, I want to change, but then you sort of start pushing them a little bit, but, in the, but not about that. I mean, but not about that or but not right. about that. And this notion that I think we cling to, like I am who I am. Uh, and I think we underestimate how much all of our just change so much all the time. And I think looking back, it's really easy to see that. But looking forward, it's kind of unimaginable. It's unfathomable how much we will. And I think you can sort of open the crack in the door with patients a little bit with giving them examples from their past of things that they've done or leaps of faith that they they took or even were forced to take for, from circumstance and that maybe help them see something a little bit differently and even mistakes they've made or will make. And I, I think in terms of we regret, I think short term, maybe things that we've done, but long term looking back, people regret what they didn't do, right? You know, see of even people on their deathbeds and it's the, the not doing, the inaction that right. sort of, I think undermines people. And as a psychiatrist, I spent a lot of time thinking about only what was above the neck and how people thought or what their feelings were and not thinking enough about actually their actions that they took that could change how they felt and would change how they think. And I was quite stuck actually in this idea of, well, how you think affects what you do. Well, also what you do affects how you think. Right. So sort of seeing it go both ways. And so how did you get into this type of positive psychiatry? What was your journey into this Oh, specialty. I was actually fired by a patient one day who was a woman I'd been seeing for a little while and she was just overwhelmed with like daily stuff and the daily grind and having issues with her husband and with her kids and just kind of couldn't keep her head above water. And we'd been talking about a lot of things that I could help sort of minimize her complaints and her symptoms. Maybe she could fight a little bit less with her husband like that, or maybe she could do like a little bit less of this, a little bit less of that. Cause I used to just focus on what was kind of wrong with people and making their symptoms less bad. Was this something that you always wanted to do even as a kid or? I love people's stories. I really loved people's stories and sort of those bigger questions in life. Why are we here? What are we doing? What's the purpose of it all? And after this experience with that, this woman, when she came in to my session one day and said, you know what, I actually didn't want to come today. All we ever do is talk about what's wrong with me and we never right. talk about anything else. It makes me feel so much worse and I'm done. And it sort of struck me that she was right. She was hundred percent right that we'd really just focused on the problems in her life and that she'd said on the way over, she was trying to come up with things she could complain about. Mm -hmm. And I have been doing that to her. The idea that I've been somehow making her feel like she's got to complain to me in some way that really made me think maybe I was focused too much on what was wrong with her and not on what was right with her and what right. were her strengths? What could I do to help not just help her feel a little bit less stressed out, but how could I kind of promote her mental health or her happiness in her life? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a common thought of anyone that's going to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist that they're going there to talk about what's wrong. Yes, totally. And as much as I've known my entire life, I mean, that was the plan, right? And then, but then how do you turn that around and sort of make it more of like a, a session with someone that's like an objective opinion and turn it into something positive? Yeah. No, and I think there's room for both really. And maybe in the way I had been practicing yeah. psychiatry was just too much in the, the level of, okay, let's identify your problems. And there's a word for that. Like every doctor's note is full of like, what is the patient's chief complaint? Mm -hmm. And that the chief complaint is I've got stomach pain or back pain or chief complaint is cardiac or it looks like they're like they're in cardiac arrest or in psychiatry, it's they're depressed, they're mm -hmm. upset, they're anxious. So that's their chief complaint. And then treatment really radiates out from that. Right. Everything you can do to kind of address this chief complaint. And you're successful if you have made them feel less bad and they are less anxious or less depressed. And if you have a patient who's in the hospital, the thinking is, well, let's get them back to baseline. Right. The idea is like before they came into the hospital. And Looking back, I was sort of like a crime thinking that was my goal was to get somebody back to baseline where they were just sort of minimally functioning and they could put their socks on and brush their teeth, walk out the door. And the idea of helping people with mental illness 
find some wellness within their illness. And I'd always thought, oh, this is just icing on the cake. Anything else, that's extra stuff. That can wait down the line. That doesn't really matter. And I think I was really missing out on those things. Many of them you can really do at the same time. These aren't frivolous or silly. Like what are the things that actually help you feel strong? What are, let's identify your strengths and let's help you figure out, okay, these are your strengths and let's figure out new ways to use them. Let's try to somehow reinvigorate your relationships and help you reconnect with other people. So I think there's a lot of ways you can address what's wrong, but also with a kind of this more expanded vision of them as, as a human being functioning in the world. Right. Are there certain exercises that people could do so it sounds very obvious to me, but I feel like, you know, yes. there are some exercises. If someone's listening and they're like, oh, you know, what can I do at home? It's January. It'll probably be February when this goes up. And mm-hmm. maybe people are feeling at that point where their resolutions are done. Yes, like, that's so true. They're in the winter. They're in the deep dredges of winter and their routine is coming back. What are some things that they can do are easy to do at home? I think it's like sort of like the third or fourth Monday, no, let me see the third Monday in January yeah. when people are most depressed because of the weather. Oh, really? Your bills are coming in from the holidays right. and it's just by then you've broken your New Year's your resolution and it's just a tough, a tough time. And then certainly, you know, weather can affect people and, and light can affect them. But yes, so I will often literally ask people, take me through your day. I want to know what is going on in your day-to-day life in some way. And so, because people will just sort of highlight one thing that they want to talk about, but then I I sort of want to look for windows of opportunity and sort of train them to as well, to, because if there was something that was sort of irritating or annoying for them, if they slept through their alarm, okay, let's solve that. This never has to happen again in some way. Like just so it can kind of just set a, a negative tone for the rest of the day. But one of those things for listeners too, is to think about looking at one of those character strengths surveys you can do and they're free. There's one on like, it's the viacharacter.org and it takes about 20 minutes to do. And it asks you a series of questions about what your strengths are. And it generates then a number of your top five strengths. Like it might be courage or curiosity or perseverance. And then one of the challenges or sort of homework I'll ask patients to do is, okay, I'd like you to then go home and use your strength in two new ways tomorrow. And I want to hear about it next week. Something like that, that can sort of help also just take the focus off of what's going wrong in their lives. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes when you use your strengths, you can sort of even use them to get around your weaknesses. And it's great to know what your weaknesses are. And I'm not a believer in like sort of whitewashing over any of that or even whitewashing over negative feelings. It's important. This is a serious squall. Wow. This really is a squall. We were wondering how to define a squall. Let's also, I think, back to like weather is so interesting though, because it's this idea of, it's one of those things you just can't control. And even when you check the weather and I've got this app that's always supposed to give me the accurate weather, it's sort of a nice reminder to surrender to the stuff that you cannot control. And, And there's a lot in our lives, I think, that we can't control that is a huge source of everyday stress. But I think we can really fortify how when it hits us, like how sort of strong we are to begin with, if our stamina is optimized as best we can. And then it's how we react to it because it's not necessarily the stress. It's kind of how we react to the stress. Right. And that's a big component of what you do. Yeah. Is talking about how you react to things as opposed to combating them. Yeah. No, because it, it is like sort of, okay, what do you do? Like you just had this angry moment with your partner or you're anxious because you're boss just said to you, can I talk to you tomorrow morning? (laughs) What does that mean? Does that mean I'm getting fired? Does that mean she hated the presentation I did? You know, and you can sort of start snowballing and ruminating about, oh my gosh, like what could this possibly mean? I think like rumination is really the enemy of joy. Rumination is just like a cow chewing its cud when you just cannot get rid of that thought of something that is negative. And then one of the worst things I think we can do is then find a buddy to co-ruminate with. And actually, I'm a big believer in when you're upset, expressing it. But when there's a lot of research around when you ruminate with somebody else and you're just sort of going through the same story again, like, can you believe that this happened? And then this happened, like, no way, that's horrible. I can't believe that. And you're not actually looking for any sort of resolution to the problem. It just turns into this downward negative spiral of of misery. And that's a really negative place to go. And it's one of the things I actually ask a lot of patients too, like, is there anybody you ruminate with? Is there anybody who you just sometimes just, do you feel like it's, you're having the same conversation over and over again, that 
one patient who would just, she would always call her friend up and they would sort of bitch about their mother-in-laws just before Thanksgiving and go through this whole thing. And it was sort of, they would outdo one another. It started as being really funny, but it kind of turned, took this really negative turn. And it was just, took a while, but she realized that this was just not a healthy place. Like they needed to find a new topic. Like right, this was like not a good place. you need to turn that person into your accountability mm-hmm. friend and not... And like you just, the, the venting yes. isn't actually so helpful. And, and I think even like coming into, I mean, the way I think about psychiatry now and more positive psychiatry is to really interrupt the venting and make sure that sessions never turn into that in any way, that it can't be just a place to unload. Of course, like you want to help them work through something, but you don't want them to just be rehashing it. Right. And so now talk to me about positive psychiatry and how is it different from traditional psychiatry? It's really the study of health and wellness. And I think positive psychiatry is just broadening the lens of psychiatry, because if you think of like psychiatry is the study of mental illness and it's really pretty laser focused, or I certainly was laser focused on what was wrong with people and what what their complaint was, what their problem was. And I became really good at misery and dialing down what their problems were, but not thinking in a sort of more expansive way about what I could do to help actually promote mental health in them and help them sort of feel emotionally strong in ways. I knew how to make them feel less weak, but I didn't know how to sort of build them up. And it wasn't a focus of mine and it has become a focus. And I don't think it's not to replace psychiatry in any way. It's just, it's adding tools to your toolbox and I think helping patients and empowering them to do things that could also take charge of their own mental health rather than just like, here's a prescription here's some activities. These are things that you can do that might help you sort of also feel strong. And I think for the right patient, it's very helpful. Right. You know, you have a whole well-rounded approach to psychiatry, which is positive psychiatry, recommending that somebody go do a workout or go to the gym or go for a run or connect with nature. And that's kind of a very unique approach to what you're doing. It's almost, maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you recommend workouts or training or programs that are good for people mentally. It's interesting. And when I was learning to become a psychiatrist, I never learned about the benefits of physical exercise or activity for mental health. And there afterwards, I've looked back at all these studies showing how beneficial we know it's good for you physically to work out and to raise your heart rate. But the mental health benefits are extraordinary. And there are studies that show it to be as good, if not better than in certain in types of depression than, than medication and even with better long-term results as well. And this is something that I literally do prescribe exercise going to. And I actually like patients to look at their mood before and after because we're really bad at thinking, following our moods, because when we're in a good mood, it's sort of hard to remember that we were in a bad mood before and sort of the opposite as well. So did this change your mood? Did going to a spinning class shift how you felt? Was going for a walk outside? It's interesting to see where they're getting the biggest boost, where they're seeing it. And actually when they're recording it themselves, it also I think is really helpful. And I try to do that as well. I certainly prescribe going to the park, spending time outdoors, not when there are squalls outside, but the benefits of being in nature, I think whenever you can. And even then taking different routes in the park, even taking a different route to work, getting off the subway stop earlier, just instead of always walking on this side of the street, walking on that side of the street, just getting out of the routine in some way, leaving with a colleague over lunch and going to walk around the block when you can, just little things like that. And not necessarily even in that you know, you've got to go to the gym and put on your jog bra and get your whole change and and do put your hair in a ponytail. But it's just more movement into their day. Can you move more? And can you take the stairs? And my office is on the second floor of a building. And I cannot tell you how, and I also share it, there's a a fitness studio next door to me. And I'm always seeing, (laughs) yes, exhale. And I'm always seeing women waiting for the elevator to go up one floor to exhale. And I'll say like, no, take the stairs. Like you're going to work out here. So just those types of things. And we physically feel better, but the mental health benefits are huge. And I think it's a study of, of, I think it was over like 10,000 people, people who have depression or anxiety and, and those who don't also, they have fewer days during each month when they feel bad, if they exercise like 30 minutes a day, it doesn't have to be some crazy thing, but they're just moving more. They're, they're walking and exercise. I use it broadly. I mean, it's right. just more movement in your day. And you know, if you have a dog, that's great. Cause well, then, dogs know, are a whole other topic that we have to cover. Cause dogs are therapy. Yes. Just 
beings of therapy, but my fur children and I call yeah, them yeah. Like fur babies yeah. I have too. But but I think that there really is something about exercise and movement when you shift your physiology and your general mindset throughout mm-hmm. the day, it really is a game changer. Yeah. There's more and more research around it and how we actually like, we're living in our heads much more and more, especially right. those of us with desk jobs and, and that our bodies were designed to move in space. And so when we're just sort of doing everything, we're typing away, we're scrolling through things, but we're actually not physically doing anything with our bodies. We're perhaps depriving our brains of these opportunities to like affect change and actually sort of change the way these connections are formed in our brain. And so there's research out there where this woman was looking at at rats and she had one group of the rats she had that was living in a cage. And this group was, they would be handed every morning a fruit loop, which is apparently like the delicacy of all time if you're a rat, but she would hide it under their bedding. So those rats had to scratch away and work hard. They would get their fruit loop. They were happy. Then this other group of rats that would just be handed on a silver platter, their fruit loop. So they just would be living the life. Imagine them on a beach in Hawaii, like in a hammock you know, with a margarita. They're literally spoon-fed practically their Fruit Loop. All the rats are happy, the ones who are given the Fruit Loop, the ones who have to dig for it. But then when she challenged them again, like she put them in a, and she called that group the Trust Fund Rats. But when she challenged all of the rats, again, I think it was they had to find their way through a different maze or they had to swim through a small area and rats can swim, they just don't like it. The ones who had had to sort of forage and scratch away were much more resilient. They were um, more persistent. They tried harder and they were able to kind of handle the challenge. Whereas those who had just been sort of handed the Fruit Loop were were useless. Right. And so I think, again, it sort of just underscores how important it is to kind of use our bodies in ways, even if it's tinkering with your hands, doing some kind of, I think it's why people say if you build, you know, when Ikea sends you a chest of drawers, when you build it yourself, when you do something with your hands, it's very fulfilling and it's engaging. You're engaging your body and your mind. And even though it's sort of wonky and you didn't get the drawers right, people actually are more attached to it in some way. But that like fulfillment that I think a lot of us are missing out on when we're not working with our hands and our bodies in some way. And even sometimes like vacuuming, things like that, that can be gratifying and satisfying in some way when we're using our bodies to change things. It's like you're exercising your mind by using your body to do things that you need to think. You might not be great at what you're doing, but... Even like washing the car, you know, yeah. like those things that are sort of fulfilling that you're seeing the the results even, you know, you're working on quite quickly. You're not just like sending an email. And I think a lot of the more kind of passive things that we're doing mm-hmm. are depriving our brains of the opportunity to be resilient. And we need to think sort of more about that kind of thing and how can we sort of build more of that physical activity into our lives. Have you seen a shift in your community and culture in general, like through your patients in the methods and modes that people are practicing to be mentally healthy? Yes. I mean, I think definitely. And I think maybe psychiatry hasn't been as on top of it as I see there's a lot of coaches and sort of more holistic practitioners who are offering meditation, acupuncture. There's this real hunger for wellness right now. And I think it's because people are so stressed out. And if it's not psychiatrists who are providing it, maybe everything that they need, that they are, if it's their trainer, if it's going to somebody who can kind of help see them in a sort of, if it's a nutritionist, I think that's also nobody focused on food when, when I was in medical school and it was an interesting, you know, unless somebody had an eating disorder, then sure, then, then we were focused on it. But Otherwise, not really. I never asked how many sodas somebody drank or how many bagels they ate in the morning. Unless I suspected that there was an eating sort of issue, it wasn't a primary topic of conversation. If they ate fast food, how many coffees they drank, it wasn't something that really I gave much airtime to. And that's completely shifted. And a study came out two years ago saying that nutrition is going to be as important to psychiatry as it is to cardiology and endocrinology. And I think we really have to, we're beginning to see this shift now. And looking at studies of how people just for over four days who eat a high fat diet, if you're a student in a, in a college and you're paid for four days to like do something like that. And 
just their shift in their mood, their memory, their agitation, irritation. I mean, in four days, you can start feeling really badly. But then I was really heartened by this study showing that, again, college students where there was just they were given fruit. It was just given to them like they didn't. Some students were given a voucher. So they had to go and buy it. The other ones were actually just given the fruit and the third group, the sort of control group that wasn't given anything. And that the ones that who started eating apples and bananas and eating grapes, that they felt within two weeks that they all reported feeling like an increased sense of vitality. They felt better. And then they continued to eat that way afterwards. And it also, I think, goes to show that you can't, you have to make it easy for them. You have to kind of put it out for all of us and try to take that to heart too, like get rid of like the candy bar in your handbag and put a bag of almonds there instead. Those types of little micro, sort of these little mini choices, and especially like when you're in a bad mood or something's really annoyed you, that's when you're going to reach for that candy bar. And if it's not there, you can't eat it. Yes, yes. I think that the world is shifting and all of these things are coming together and we're finding that physical wellness is mental wellness and that the mind and the body have always been and are connected. But I feel like- Who knew? (laughs) I think people are really, I've been part of the whole nutrition thing. Mm -hmm. Like as over the past few years, I had the opportunity to work with an author 10 or 15 years ago that was writing a gluten-free cookbook. Mm -hmm. And she had started that because she had developed food allergies as a mom when she was pregnant. And then when she had kids, she had food allergies and then we learned the how food affects autism yeah. and celiacs and all these other diseases. And on a bigger, broader level, food is super important with health and wellness. But even on a day-to-day, like when I'm eating more greens and more kale and eating a healthier, fresher, I feel better. I have yeah. a lot of energy. And then when I have a lot of energy, then I'm happy. Whereas if I'm eating pasta or carbs or you know, then I'm just like low energy and then I'm kind of blah. It is that blah thing. And then like when, when sort of things get sort of stressful, then that's sort of, I think when we do make those bad choices, it's such an interesting idea though, like around food and kids. And especially like we know all these kids who have diagnoses of ADHD and Is it because they're not sleeping because they're staying up all night on their phones? Or is it also, there's a study from England that suggests it really is these sort of high sugary breakfasts that they're eating that teachers are seeing when they compared kids who had eaten oatmeal in the morning to kids who had eaten a high sort of sugary breakfast. Right. That the teachers were blind to it, but the high sugary breakfast kids were far more disruptive and had a harder time concentrating. So even for moms, I'll always say I was going to say, what do you do? You're a mom. I mean, you have two children. Do you ban sugary food from the house. <laughs> like, I, like, it's so no hard. fast food. It's so yeah. hard. No soda. Except, you know, if they're at, like with friends, like I can't be that like totally mean mom there. But I just want it to be not a norm for us that you're right. not thinking that this is like a norm to come home and drink a soda or something. And the idea of, I mean, <laughs> poor things make, I make them like oatmeal every morning. But even I have my son, he walks to school or he takes a skateboard to school. Then right. it's, even when it's cold out, it's actually fun. You know, it's so great for kids. And right. You see all the studies in Europe, though, too, of kids who walk or bike to school are much less likely to have attentional issues. And that just the importance of them being more physical and so many schools kind of take recess out of the day or PE out of the day, that that's so important. It's as important and it will actually reinforce what they're learning in the classroom when they're sitting at a desk. So I'm a big believer in that and that sort of that combination of sleeping and eating and moving that is not what I had focused on in psychiatry. And I've sort of moved much more in that direction in the past 10 years. So what are some of the workouts and healthy exercise habits that fuel you for success doing what you do? For, oh, for me, like I spend a lot of time in the park. I Whatever the weather is, unless it's pouring with rain, I am in the park probably like four or five days a week. And I'm always trying to figure out a different route and go in a different way. Are you a runner um, or? I'll run. I run part of it. I kind of run walk. Okay. And I have a friend of mine who'll come with me. And I actually think when you kind of will work out with a friend, it's, yes. it's more fun. The time goes by and we'll just chat away. And so there's a lot more of that. I ride horses that I love to do. I think it just sort of that keeps my Has mind. Has that been something you've done your entire life? 
just for fun, for fun, just for joy, the joy of it. I'm yeah. never competing. I just enjoy it. And especially if I can go out on trails and things like that, I love that. And I'll do that with my kids too. And there's something just, again, you're on this like beautiful animal and you can't be thinking about your laundry. Your, your head has to be No, because they'll know too. They, they, they do. Can tell. They, they fully do. So I think all of those opportunities, anytime you can do something like that. And my husband and I, over Christmas, we just went to Bhutan and there's hiking there every day. And it was heaven to go up Tiger's Nest and all these beautiful places. And now that my kids are of the age, they can do that too. And right. my daughter's a little mountain goat. So it was- How old are your kids? They're 11 and 12. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to be able to do that kind of thing with them. And as a family, right. it's such a nice thing to like a sort of shared activity to do together as well. Yeah. And speaking of animals, you have a dog. Yes, I have two. So can you just define- in a real way, a therapy dog, because seriously, I feel like dogs were put on this earth just to be these bundles of love. And for this short period of time that they're here with us, but they're basically like built-in therapy machines. They are. And I think where humans fail and Mm -hmm. they have shortcomings, that's when the dogs intuitively know and they're there for you. And They'll know, even if like my son would be upset about something, like the panda will just sort of nudge her little body in there in a way that I think that in not having to talk all the time, you know, you don't have to talk to your mom then. I think that communication, that unspoken, just sort of unconditional love and also just the the taking care of, I've got to say for my kids, like the taking care of an animal is also lovely. And you've got a responsibility to this animal to walk it and to feed it. And your kids walk and feed the dog. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, that's sort of why you have kids, you know, (laughs) they've got to help with the house. No, but they enjoy it. I mean, they'll complain on like a rainy day, but it's really helpful. And I think they're actually just, they're so much closer to the dogs as a result. I was, you know, spending some time reading some of the articles on your website, Positive Prescriptions. And I loved particularly two or three of the articles that I wanted to talk about. One was why chilling out can stress you out. It's amazing. I mean, it can be really stressful for people when they know they have to go on vacation thinking, what am I going to do when I'm not focused on doing work? It's an incredibly stressful moment when people are just used to being nonstop in their sort of daily lives. And I'll find a lot of those types will end up booking vacations that are nonstop then because they can't even... The thought of sitting on a beach sends like waves of panic up their spine. Like they cannot imagine that thought of chilling out and they'll do anything. They'll be like, I'll stay, I'll, you know, I think, you know, if someone's going to be sick. I need to stay in the office and do something and they'll, they'll constantly check in to make sure everything's okay and have a really hard time letting go. And they kind of become irritable thinking about it. And it's so hard for people. And I think who are especially like type A personalities to yep. let go. It's, it's the surrendering of the control of their day-to-day life and whatever they their operation that Mm -hmm. they kind of run. But then it's also the thought of like being with themselves. This busyness of life has kind of created this great distraction then from thinking about anything that's sort of maybe more important, but less urgent, you know? And I think we all have like trouble with that sort of urgency, important issue. And we can put off or we end up putting off some of those more important things as things we need to think through, like those bigger questions, like what am I going to do about this big decision that I needed, I needed to make that we can just sort of put that off and you sort of on the back burner. But when you've got that time without all those distractions, it's really daunting to kind of sit with yourself. And I remember once sitting on a flight going, it was like in a long flight, must've been like an eight or 10 hour flight. And I looked in my handbag and this is pre-Kindle, pre-phone, and I didn't have my New Yorker. And just the thought of having to sit on this airplane without a book to read, (laughs) what am I going to do? And that the idea of just sitting with myself was torment. I can totally relate. I mean, if anybody listening is knows me, they can see my face. I'm already panicking from the conversation, which is why I brought it up because I didn't even realize that it was like a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was just maybe me feeling like, oh my God, like we're going on vacation. I have to disconnect for an entire week. And then Mm -hmm. I come back and I have 7,000 emails. And then what was the point of the whole vacation? And I'm going to be on an airplane. So I have to read 15 magazines in a four hour period of time. Like I do that. Right. <laughs> right. It's my type A personality. Right. To sort of, and what if next time you just sort of force yourself to even don't watch a movie, just sit with yourself. It's so hard. Trust yeah. me. Whenever no, I, tried I don't to even do it, know. I couldn't do it. Even 
half an hour or if you're talking to your daughter then instead, like just spending yeah. that time instead rather than just kind of, I think there's a safety in that we're talking about kind of being in a comfort place, a comfort zone of of distraction. Right. It's sort of, especially it becomes what you know. And then that fear of when I don't have all this stuff that's being fired at me to think about then what? I'll probably create more stuff. I think, and I think that's it, yeah. how I started this podcast. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. No, but I think that it brings up the topic of meditation because I mean, mm-hmm. I think that like you're saying, it's just even one minute, like, even yeah. if you, you know, start with like a small step. Yes. No. And I, and I think for some people like meditation maybe makes them more anxious, you right. know, and I, you yeah. know, I, I've run into patients who, who know that it, it's worse for me and people can find their own way and whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. And I think for somebody, it might be a walk in the park. I had, had read about studies saying, well, no music when you're running or walking, right. you can sit with yourself, look at the trees, look at the sky, look at the grass, just look out and look outside of yourself rather than if the panic is, oh, who am I? Why am I here? Like it's right. sort of like one of those existential things, but actually just sort of observing the world outside of you. And that's sort of what you're doing in meditation also, right. but maybe it's a different pathway to the same calm mental space mm-hmm. that can be helpful though. And I think sometimes when you're doing those exercise routines that are also so distracting, they're not as somehow rejuvenating or somehow right. as fulfilling as ones that are more there's like a calmer sense of, of a mind and body sort of connection there yeah. when I mean, you're not I being screamed that. at or like music's yeah. not blasting. I usually run with music mm-hmm. and, or then I'll be like listening to a podcast, mm-hmm. but there have been times where for whatever reasons, like I was in Maine on a trail and I was running and I was afraid that, you know, a giant bear was going to come out of the woods <laughs> and like attack reason. me. So I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to be, have my wits about me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's such a difference. I mean, it really yeah. is. That's, I can do that. Like I've done that before, but it's, you know, the idea of sitting on a beach yeah. for like hours. And it's just, torture for yeah. you, but just like sitting with and yourself. Know, like any entrepreneur, a lot of, you mm-hmm. know, founders or people that are like striving type A personality or... But and it's the thing that and there, there's so many lost vacation days, people just leave on the table and they don't take. And the problem around it is that this worship of work, and I'm a big believer in satisfying work and purposeful, you know, and finding meaning in what you're doing. But at the same time, you really do need to unwind and, and to rejuvenate. And the thing is, you will be better at what you do right. if you do that. And I have such a hard time drinking my own sort of Kool-Aid here yeah. because- I know if I actually stop and get off my treadmill desk and actually sit down and order from Sweetgreen, I will be more productive in the afternoon. Whereas like sometimes I'll just want to like stay at my desk and just keep working. Even though I've read 10 studies just that morning saying people who take breaks and take time off. And so it's in in small ways, like in your day, you should take more breaks. Like we all should be taking more breaks, especially in the morning. Those morning breaks are apparently are really, really important and go towards sort of, instead of taking one long break in the afternoon, like around three or four o'clock, take like more breaks and take more shorter breaks and take I think like two in the morning, just those those breaks will, whatever you're working on, you're going to get better at it. Even, oh, I love this study. I just see the other day looking at people who had a short conversation, like a 10 minute conversation with a friend, like a pleasant one. Right. Not a venting session. (laughs) not, Not a venting session. I'm glad you said that. Is that they were able to concentrate more, their focus improved, that they were able to like problem solve better. All these little things yeah. that we think, oh, that's a waste of time. Who has time to go on vacation? Who has right. time to talk to a colleague? Actually, that's the stuff we should be doing and we'll be more productive if we do it. It's just, it's hard to convince somebody to do it. They have to kind of, you know, you just got to be like, okay, you've got to do this, you know, and, and yeah. make yourself do it once or twice. And then you really do, I think, start recognizing that you're better at what you're doing as a result of it. Yeah. And I think it's not the same for everyone. So I actually recently, I used to wake up and read my emails from bed. Like I would like read my phone. So I stopped doing that a year ago and it's been a game changer. My morning routine is wake up, pet my dogs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) feed them, have coffee. I don't talk to anyone until I've had coffee. There's no exchange. It's just chill out, zone out time. I haven't made it to the meditation stage yet, but yeah. It's on the list of my bucket list. It's not on my like to-do list this year. It's not urgent yeah, right no, now. No, no, yeah. no. But yeah, but I think that for everyone, it's different, but it's mm-hmm. important. It goes back to that whole 
concept of self-care. Yeah. And, yeah. But, and I also like, as you say, it's just that little thing yeah. that you've suddenly, that's the one thing you don't do. For me, it was getting my cell phone just out of my bedroom right. and I just charge it somewhere else. It's like those little things. And even when you want to reach for it, then you can't, you know, so you right. actually make the thing that you know isn't healthy a little harder somehow. Right. But sometimes self-care though, also I get a little concerned that it can take on a sort of a flavor that becomes too self-focused and it becomes a bit of an excuse for retreating or even sort of a form of narcissism sometimes of, wait, oh, I am not going to join my friend for her birthday because I don't like that kind of food at that restaurant and I'm on this juice cleanse and I'm not going to do that. And it becomes sometimes I think a bit of an excuse or gives us permission to avoid situations that we don't want to be in in the first place, kind of, and we're being avoidant and self-care has become this perfect permission slip to do that. And there's so much sort of preaching around like self-care, put yourself first, take care of yourself first. And sometimes I think it's almost, it can take a darker turn where it's actually just an excuse to kind of withdraw and almost like that Mm self-immersion or self-focus is typically like people aren't so happy when they're super self-focused. Right. And I think we were talking about that a little bit in the beginning. It's finding, I think finding the balance. Yeah. That's a yoga thing to go to the park and connect with nature. But if it's like your best friend's birthday, like that's not cool. Yeah. No. (laughs) And it's sort of like, oh, I had a really long day. I really don't feel like going meeting my friend for dinner, or I just don't feel like making that phone call right now. I've got to finish this thing up at work. Right. Sort of like the priorities. And I do think that there's so much pressure around work and I think so much self-definition through achievement, 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 that that can kind of, I think, really just make people so sort of stressed out that they just do want to retreat into themselves. And that is a natural reaction when you're feeling overwhelmed is to just kind of you know, withdraw and retreat and to sort of do what you feel and maybe skip your workout and not exercise and not see your friends. And, and that that is, if you're using self-care as as an excuse to say like, oh, I'm going to take a bubble bath and stay home tonight, you've taken it too far. The other topic that I loved that was on your website was the one about why following your passion is... It is so frustrating. And I think every, you see this in like May and June, it's every graduation speech about following your passion It's not good advice to anybody because the idea that, wait, I don't have a passion. Like it's like, we would forget the follow your passion side. The idea of like, I met many young women who are like, I don't really know. What is my passion? What am I supposed to be doing? I kind of like this. I kind of like that. But this idea, if you don't have a passion, you may as well just give up. And that even if you do have a passion, as you're saying, like, well, is this worth completely dropping whatever, you know, quitting your job and going to pursue this, this idea. And I think one of the best things any of us can have are hobbies. So the idea that we have things that we have outside of our work, so that are engaging, that are, I mean, hobbies are the purest form of love, actually, you know, that's something that you do just because you love doing it. So if something that you really love doing, but is not going to make sense for your, is a, an entrepreneur that you think this is not really an opportunity here, but I'm going to keep doing this because I love it. Right. Keep that as your hobby. And I think fewer and fewer people have hobbies today. I feel like they're like spend so much time just working or on their phones, sort of like when they're not at work or they're maybe they're working out. Do you think that's because we live in New York or you think it's everywhere? I think it's, it's everywhere. You know, because I did ask somebody who I was interviewing more recently and when I, she was a lot younger, I mean, probably a millennial. And I asked her about what her hobbies were. And I, I, she looked at me like I was asking her if she like collects stamps <laughs> and it was just this embarrassing That's moment. So I was like, am I that old? You know, or like coins or something. But it was this, this idea though, that I, she'd had lots of hobbies. Like when she was, she was in college, she had a lot of interests. And I just think the idea of having, I mean, hobby is the wrong word. Maybe it's just so old fashioned, but like the idea of having many interests outside of your yeah. work, you know, or things that you do if it's baking, but you're not going to follow your passion and quit your job and become a baker. But this idea of doing things that you love doing and having interests, because I think having interests outside of your domain, your work, will enhance then your work. And I think study after study shows that, that people, when they they have time, like they're studying a language they want to learn. They are pursuing, they're building something in their garage, whatever that type of thing is, they enjoy doing that will enhance their work. And again, it it goes to our earlier conversation around not working all the time and making peace with the fact that we're not going to be, we're going to be actually more productive, not less productive. If we take that time to do, pursue a hobby, to spend time with others, to take care of ourselves, to exercise, to eat well. 
And it goes back to the idea too, I think around eating that we were talking about how eating with others, those shared meals, like right. doing things together is so lovely and cooking for somebody, cooking together, or I think eating together that food tastes better when you're sharing it with somebody else. Right. And the idea of getting away from your desk, maybe going with your coworker to the deli and getting your salad or whatever that thing is. I think just those types of opportunities are little uplifts in our day right. that can help balance out some of the hassle. That's so funny. Okay. I want to talk about your website, Positive Prescriptions. You have so many great sections and columns and topics like sessions, optimize every day, cultivate connections, maximize mood, get inspired. There are some really great articles and I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about the website. Okay. So the sessions have been really fun, just finding sort of smart, interesting people who are sharing, what are they doing to sort of make every day better? What matters to them in some way? And I think sometimes, you know, you learn about somebody and what they do and it just might be that thing that clicks and you're like, I could do that. Or, oh my gosh, I would never do that. That seems ridiculous, but maybe that inspires me to do this instead. So I think we sort of learn so much from others all the time about what they're doing. And when people are actually sharing so generously, you know, what they're up to and sort of what makes them tick and what they do every day to sort of make their day a little bit better. Like what's their routine? What's sitting on their bedside table that they've got to, you know, which I always think is sort of slightly mocking all of us. Like it's got all of our unread books and articles and New Yorkers that we're going to read one day. But that type of thing. And if they have some sort of mantra, like Marjorie Goobelman really wrote a very funny one. She's an interesting woman. She had a candle business and then she decided to become a DJ. She completely sort of changed her world around. She went to DJ Academy and now DJs at all these glamorous parties and has completely found and sort of reinvented herself. And I think so many of us are a little bit afraid of, of change and, and of being sort of, sort of flip-flopping in any way or like not being consistent. And the opportunity to reinvent ourselves is there sort of every single day. And that's really what the purpose of that sessions column. And there are other sections in there about sort of cultivating your connections. Like what can you do every single day that would be, we all know it's important to have good relationships, whatever that means, or sources of support. But what does that mean on a daily basis? And I, that's where it gets lost because you'll ask people about their actual, their connections with somebody that day and with their partner. Oh, I didn't even know if I saw them today. Oh or like God, I sort of snarled at them. <laughs> and the first thing they grab is their phone in the morning, not you, but the idea that that's what they reach for rather than maybe giving their partner a peck on the cheek or their child, giving their child a hug in the morning, something like that. Those little interactions that mean so much and that we just don't act on them. And even all those studies about introverts, when they're sometimes even asked to sort of be extroverted or spend time with others, they're actually happier. Not all the time, but it's actually just spending time. And I know for myself, when I don't really want to go to something and I'll be like, oh, can I cancel? And all those like different scenarios of excuses that I could use come up. When you go, you're usually pretty happy. You went. Yeah. It's just yeah. that hurdle to get there. It's the hurdle to get there. And so whatever you can do, I think to kind of make that hurdle easier, if it's put your dress out the night before, whatever those like little things yeah. are. That's how I get to work out half the time is I just convince myself to go to the gym. And if worst case scenario, I can just eat something. Yes, at the gym, they yes. have a cafe and I can just hang out there. Yeah. But I usually like, once I'm there, I'm getting on the treadmill. You're not going to yeah. just like hang out. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And eat something. <laughs> but it's like just those little things, I think, where we, you know, there's interactions with strangers. You're say thank you to the barista, interact with the couple in the park that's from out of town who's taking pictures, offer to take that photograph for them. Those little things that you can just have these opportunities, these little uplifts, I think, where you can interact with people and be nice to them. I just read this study looking at why people don't express gratitude in their everyday lives. And one of the main reasons they don't is they're just, they feel like it's, they're sort of embarrassed to, like they think it's kind of awkward to say thank you and how they underestimate how valuable it would be to the person who they would be thanking. And they also overestimate how awkward it is. So we're kind of just missing these little moments in our everyday lives where we're not capitalizing on these actual interactions because that's interactions build good relationships. That's what it's about. Right. And then your other section, which is amazing, is maximize mood and then cultivate connections. Right? Yeah. So that big sort of that emphasis on cultivating connections every single day. And so much of it comes down to being nice to one another. 
And one of my other favorite studies was looking at the intimacy desire paradox, because they say that after a while, couples aren't so attracted to each other, that maybe the passion's gone. We were talking about passion before, it's a different kind of passion, so that the passion sort of is gone. But studies show, though, that actually all it takes is like being nice to each other. Right. And it's about noticing each other. It's looking up when they say, hey, did you see this? Rather than sort of keeping your head buried in your phone. And those little gestures that we have to one another, we know that commuter couples aren't as happy because they're not as satisfied with their relationships because they have fewer positive interactions. And I think For us to have relationships that feel fulfilling, we have to have these frequent positive interactions in our days. And also not to underestimate like our interactions with strangers or people we don't know. I think anybody, when they're standing online, they'll grab that opportunity to, you know, check their email. What if you talk to the person next to you? I was stuck last year at jury duty and it was such an (sighs) interesting moment because you actually can't have your phone with you in these places. And I'd been dreading it. And I actually get there and I was like, you know what, make the most of this. And it was so interesting. I met the nicest people in the woman who was running the whole thing was terrific too. And you sort of have respect. It is a kind of incredible, it's, it's an honor to be able to go down there. I didn't have to serve on, on a jury, but where you actually meet somebody who you would never know. And you have, you meet another New Yorker who's got a totally different experience. Yeah. And those types of connections I really enjoy much more. And I'm pretty shy actually. So I've never been one to do that. I think in my old age, I'm really trying sometimes to not be myself. I'll think of like be on me, do the thing that goes against my brain. (laughs) Yeah. Because it gets me out of my comfort zone. And I actually sometimes tell that to my patients. There's all this like messaging now, like always be yourself, be yourself. Well, sometimes being yourself is not the best idea, especially when you're going to be a little bit irritable or whatever, but be that better version of yourself or do the thing that you don't really feel like doing, which is showing up at your friend's party or talking to the person next to you. And it's so much easier to retreat into your phone. But actually when you do kind of transcend yourself, you'll make that connection. It'll be an uplift and maybe your day will be a little better. Well, this has been so awesome. Thank you so Thank much. You. For Thank you. Thank you for time. having me. I really enjoyed this. This is great. Thank you. Awesome. I really enjoyed Thank this. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 